You're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Alban, in the Kajafo, sings the show-stopping song, I Am What I Am. I am my own special creation, so come take a look. Give me the hook or the ovation. It's my world that I want to take a little pride in. My world, and it's not a place I have to hide in. Life's not worth a damn till you can say, Hey world, I am what I am. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Myron Janelle. Dr. Janelle is Professor Emeritus of Pediatrics at Yale University School of Medicine. He was Director of Pediatric Endocrinology from 1971 to 1985. Dr. Janelle received the 2004 Joseph W. St. Gemma Leadership Award, one of the highest honors in academic pediatrics, and was the recipient of the Abraham Jacoby Memorial Award from the American Academy of Pediatrics. In 2006, he was appointed the Health and Human Services Secretary's Advisory Committee on Human Research Protection. Dr. Janelle is a member of the International Olympic Committee Working Group on Transsexual Athletes. Today we are discussing intersex disorders, also known as disorders of sex development. Welcome, Dr. Janelle, and thank you for joining us at the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you. The term pseudohermaphrodism sounds politically incorrect to me. Is it controversial to you? Well, it is politically incorrect, but this was the medical term that was used for, for generations uh, until recently, when I think, uh, in part because of, I think of the activism of uh, some former patients uh, who felt that the term was, uh, how shall I put it, uh, insulting. It's are degrading, degrading. I mean, uh, these the male pseudohermaphrodites uh, are individuals who have a XY uh, a chromosome pattern, but who have various disorders of uh, sexual differentiation, uh, so that they uh, are not uh, completely uh, virilized. Now, this may be because uh, in utero, or uh, they, they do not make uh, appropriate levels of testosterone. It may be because they cannot convert testosterone to its most active intracellular hormone. That's a dihydrotestosterone, which requires a specific enzyme. It may be because the cellular receptors that are necessary to respond to uh, testosterone are abnormal and do not recognize testosterone. And that, can, that uh, in its uh, classic form, is, uh, is so-called testicular feminization, which is a term we seldom really don't use anymore either. Really, the, the, the preferred term is uh, androgen insensitivity uh, syndrome, or AIS. Uh, and there may be individuals uh, who have some responsiveness uh, to uh, testosterone, but not complete. And all of these individuals, and there's a number of other very rare genetic defects, uh, the end result of which is that you have somebody who is a genetic male who does not differentiate uh, fully as uh, as a male, in which case they may have uh, they may present with a very uh, ambiguous uh, looking genitalia that are not completely formed, or they may appear to be totally female externally, which is the classic case of an androgen insensitivity disorder. Yet their internal genitalia are male, not female. Some of these children present at birth. Oh yes, well uh, typically they do present at birth. Uh, although the, the child who has uh, androgen insensitivity disorder who will unlikely be recognized because they'll look like a uh, typical female. I mean, there's nothing that would identify them specifically as having an abnormality unless they have indirect inguinal hernia, which sometimes will present early in life. And that, that can be a tip-off in a girl, in a patient who otherwise looks like a perfectly normal girl. The baby's born. You're called to the nursery to examine the child. You realize this is a intersex problem. Right. What do you tell the parents and how do you counsel them? 
Well, I think in some cases you can arrive at a pretty reasonable presumptive diagnosis with a good uh, with a good clinical exam or certainly within a short period of time. I think with today's technology you can get a chromosome karyotype within 24 hours in most cases, or at least enough to tell you whether it's a, you're dealing with an individual who has an XY or an XX chromosome. But more, more significantly, you can get a pelvic ultrasound and you can determine whether, there's a, whether there's the uterus is present. If a uterus is present, then you are the most likely you're dealing with a virilized female. That is, you're dealing with a female child who has been masculinized in utero because of the in utero uh, production of abnormal uh, androgens. Now, typically, uh, that's uh, the most common cause of that is uh, the forms of adrenal hyperplasia. Uh, if the uterus is not present and you have uh, ambiguity of genitalia, then the probability is that you're dealing with an under-virilized male who could have one of a number of disorders of, uh, of uh, sexual development. The first one, I think, is easy. I think uh, with the presence of a utero, uh, uterus, with uh, a presumptive diagnosis and confirmed diagnosis uh, within a very short period of time, that this is a female. I think that female uh, sex of rearing, gender of rearing, is is, uh, is, is is almost you know is almost always going to be the right decision, if not always going to be the right decision. Uh, that was not always the case, say 30 years ago where some individuals uh, who were extremely uh, virilized to the point where they had a phallic uh, urethra were raised as males, but think that's highly unusual if that were to happen at all uh, anymore. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and with me today is Dr. Myron Janelle. Dr. Janelle is Professor Emeritus of Pediatrics at Yale University School of Medicine, He was director of pediatric endocrinology from 1971 to 1985, and we are discussing disorders of sex development. In preparing to talk with you, I learned a new term, sexual dysphoria. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how it comes about? What the term is used is to define individuals who are genetically, hormonally one gender, who feel and think is if they belong to the opposite gender. This is not a term that we use, say, for individuals who are homosexual. But these are individuals who feel that they are, if you will, locked up in the body of the opposite gender. The term that's used is gender dysphoria. That is, that they feel that they emotionally feel that they are belong to the opposite gender. There was some reading that I did that showed, or pretended to show, that there are sexual differences in brain structure, that the androgen have effect on both neural and behavioral development? Oh, there's no question about that. And that's been demonstrated now by some of the very sophisticated uh, imaging techniques. Uh, and, uh, I mean, one can actually visualize this, and that is that men and women uh, use different parts of their brain for uh, for various uh, cognitive functions. It's been demonstrated in reading, for example. Some of my colleagues here at Yale have demonstrated that. Language development, uh, a very famous cover of Nature by Bennett and Sally Shaywitz in 1990. Five shows spectacular differences in the areas of the brain that light up in both males and females, given the same standard test. Now, in those people with gender dysphoria, are any of these measurable differences? Well, you know, I don't know the answer to that. It's a very interesting question, and I think it would be very interesting to do these uh, two-functional MRIs 
in individuals who have gender dysphoria to see whether or not they, uh, it may, if it's been done, I'm not aware of it, but that's a very interesting question. Can you influence the choice of gender or by androgen supplementation, for instance, or estrogen supplementation? No, it does not seem to be the case. I mean, rather, it seems like these individuals, the treatment for gender dysphoria, which is quite rigorous, the assessment and treatment for gender dysphoria is, is, is quite rigorous. And those individuals who we qualify now as transsexuals would be uh, among those who have uh, gender dysphoria. Now, mind you, what I'm saying is you may have a larger group that has gender dysphoria, and in among that group, individuals who are sufficiently distressed by their gender dysphoria that they will go through the extraordinary therapy that is required uh, for gender change. Where this gets very, very interesting from our perspective is that when you have individuals who have presumed gender dysphoria who go through the arduous task of converting gender, and for the most part what we're talking about from athletic, from the perspective of athletic competition, are male-to-female transsexuals. Could you give us an example? Well, Renee Richards is the most classic example. I mean, this is an individual, very well-educated, an ophthalmologist, Yale-educated ophthalmologist, as a matter of fact, who... uh, converted to a female and was a, a quite successful amateur tennis player. But then as a uh, as, as having converted to uh, Renee, wished to compete in open tennis and actually sued the uh, United States Tennis uh, Association to compete in the U.S. Open Tennis Championships uh, and succeeded. She, I mean, as a pro tennis player, she was modestly successful. I mean, she was not terribly successful in singles, but she was uh, reasonably successful in women's doubles and I think reached the finals of the U.S. Open on one occasion in in women's doubles. In a nutshell, if a patient came into my office and shared with me their thoughts about gender dysphoria, what would be my next step? Well, I think very careful counseling and and professional counseling. I mean, there are individuals and centers that have specialized in this. And in fact, it's in gender, so-called gender dysphoria is being recognized in younger and younger age groups. I mean, it is by no means, I think it should be obvious that, I mean, it just doesn't begin when somebody becomes 18 or 21. It it obviously occurs earlier, and I think it's being recognized uh, earlier. But I think, yes, the first thing would be a very, I mean, non-judgmental evaluation and I think a, a, a referral to a, a treatment center that specializes in, uh, in dealing with these individuals. I'd like to thank you very much, Dr. Janelle, for being our guest. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening, and I wish you good day and good health.